Praise the Lord. The Lord is good. Can we just bow down here to say a word of prayer? Our Father, we thank you for you have been blessing us thus far. As we go into your word, Lord, we ask for understanding for everyone present here in the name of Jesus. Lord, and as I speak your word, let me speak only your word alone and not my own understanding in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Praise the Lord. Oh, like I said at the beginning, of course, first of all, I want to welcome everybody once again. And I want to thank Sister Gloria for that uh, rendering. That's, um, I did like six jobs in one day. The video, the audio, everything. <laughs> Nobody will have had to watch that on um, the screen. Um, I said something at the beginning that it's our, it's our closest meeting to Easter. And for that reason, the theme for today's meeting is centered around um, Easter. And Easter, as we know, is the way the church remembers the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we are, my message today, therefore, is titled, His Cross and the Resurrection. His Cross and the Resurrection. And that was why we read from that book of Philippians chapter 3, which um, was our Bible reading for today. We read the whole, essentially, the whole chapter. Now, there is something we'll find out if you read, of course, all these hymns we've been taking today, the songs we took, the clip we watched, and the Bible reading, every single one of them mentions something about the cross of Christ Jesus. And there is something that should come to mind. You know, sometimes we don't think about it because many of us have been Christians for a long time, or at least we have attended church since we were young, at least for for a very long time. So the word cross... It's become part of our lives, so many times we don't even bother to think specially about it. But if we were to step back and look at the concept of the cross, we will find out why the Greeks did not understand it, and why the Jews stumbled at that cross. And when the Bible uses the word stumbling, it means that somebody gets to a point and things don't make sense anymore. For those of us who know about science, physicists, they're always trying to like Albert Einstein lived trying to write the, the, the laws on the general theory of relativity. And they get to the point, everybody stumbles. That is, they can't really connect things together. That's what we I mean by people stumbling about something. Like I was saying, if we come out from the mind of a Christian, just look at what we call the cross, it is actually what the Greeks would call foolishness. It's actually very foolish. And that was why Paul had a lot of problems problems explaining this to people because if you don't understand the depth of spiritual things the cross actually is very funny early yesterday night and early this morning in fact early this morning i woke my wife up to come and watch this video i was watching this film ad um the bible continues there's this tv series that ran in the u.s on the on bible on the bible stories and i was just watching it again you see the killing of the lord jesus the punishment his death the resurrection and all of that the question that should quickly come to mind was, was that necessary? That's what I mean by the stumbling. Because if you look at it critically, you ask yourself, was it necessary? Okay, why did they have to die? You say, for the forgiveness of our sins. Why didn't God just forgive the sins and forget all of these things? I don't know whether we ever thought about it like that. that he, I mean, he's God. He could have just looked and said, all right. Okay, Adam, 
I'm, it's just that I don't feel like punishing anybody today. Let's forget it. Why did he not do that? Why did he now send Jesus that he should go and die? That's what I mean by the problem of observing the cross from outside Christianity. Because except one really understands the depth of spiritual things, the cross does not make any sense. You want to deliver the people of Israel, which was a prelude to the cross. Then you say, all right, go and take an animal. Why didn't you just go in there, collect them and take them away? Who will stop you? You are God. Pharaoh is not big enough to stop you. You just go there, collect all the people, say, everybody follow me. And if any Roman, um, um, Egyptian soldier follows, kill him. And the angels will come behind. And that's not the first time. Angels have killed the day they were fighting the Assyrians. One night they killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. It wouldn't be a new thing. They are used to doing things like that. God himself one day came and killed everybody on the earth. Minus Noah, his wife, and their children and their wives. And that was all. those are the only human beings that survived. Nobody asked him in the past. Why now that to deliver people from Israel, from Egypt, he said, first, you offer a sacrifice, then paint it on the doorposts, and then I will now kill the firstborns of the house of the Egyptians, and then I will deliver the people. I'll be honest with you, I'm the preacher for this evening, I don't fully understand too. <laughs> that is a matter of fact, I, I don't claim to fully understand. One thing I know, however, is that the Bible says that his ways are just. Everything that he does, all right, everything is perfect. There is ne- never anything he does that is out of order. That's one thing we are sure of. Eli said, if you want to understand life, you must start by ascribing righteousness to the maker. That is, you have to just understand, assume. That, I mean, every, I remember those when we were doing additional mathematics. Anytime you want to solve a problem, you have to make certain assumptions. And it's based upon that you now start solving a problem. Even if you have to correct the assumptions later, it helps you, it gives you a template upon which you can solve a problem. And when Eli was going to speak to Job, he said, if I want to speak, I have to ascribe righteousness to my maker, which means that we must understand that all his ways are perfect. Everything he does is just. To be just means to be right, to be a fair person. God is more, like one man of God said, he said, God is more interested in righteousness than in loving people. That is for him, when he's doing things, the thing he's doing must be just. It must be right. It must never be wrong. If he ever does anything that is wrong, there is a problem with the existence of the universe. If I, when um, Abraham was going to talk to him on the way down to um, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, when he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, one statement Abraham made was, far be it from the Almighty to do wickedness. He said, everything you do must be right. Will you therefore destroy the just with the wicked, and God said, no, I won't do that. Now, Abraham understood that he never does anything that is wrong. That's what I'm trying to say. So, if he said Jesus has to die, it must have been important. In fact, even Jesus himself, at the time he was praying, he looked at the cross, and I think everybody should try and see that film, The Passion of the Christ. That is one good depiction of the kind of thing that happened. Was it accurate? I wasn't the original one, so I don't know whether the film was accurate. But one thing I'm sure from understanding of the Bible is that it was that intense, at least spiritually. And the main suffering that the Lord Jesus suffered was not even the one of the cross. I remember then when I was watching the film in my house with my wife and one young woman that came to visit us. And as typical of, you know, with the way women are and the way men, men would just say, oh, this is horrible. Women would start crying. <laughs> you know the way it normally goes. So the two of them were looking and said, oh, why, why? 
I made a statement that I almost got lynched, except that there were just two women. They couldn't lynch me, all right? <laughs> I said it was not paining him. And they looked at me like, what did you just say? I said, this thing wasn't painful. Now, explain. I said, by the time he came to the cross, he was prepared. I said, if you wanted to see pain, you should have gone to the garden. The garden was where the pain was. On the cross, you needed to lash him before he bled. Or on the way to the cross. I said, but in the garden, he bled without anybody touching him. Such was the intensity of the pressure in his soul. His skin broke. People think that his sweat became like blood. No, the Bible literally says that his sweat became, that he was sweating drops of blood. Blood was dropping from his brow because of the pressure that was inside his soul. So I'm certain of one thing, that the suffering he suffered, at least spiritually, was as intense as Mel Gibson depicted that thing in that film, The Passion of the Christ. One thing I'm very certain of is that it was necessary because he prayed to the Father, if there is any other way, because he saw how difficult this was going to be. He said to himself, he said, now is my soul troubled unto death. He said, should I say, Father, deliver me from this hour? That's in John chapter 12. He said, but I can't pray that prayer because for this cause I came to this hour. It shows it was necessary. So when the hour came, he said, Father, if it's possible, find another way. I don't have to go to this cross. I don't want to go to it. He said, nevertheless, not what I want, but what you have decided. Let that one be done. Not my will, but yours be done. And the Father made it clear to him, there is no other way. God is not a sadist. No, he's not a sadist. If he said this is your way, it means that was the only way. If his only begotten son had to suffer like that, it meant there was no other way. I remember once when I was a medical student, then um, our orthopedic surgeon, he was examining a particular patient that had um, diabetic gangrene. And so we just, of course, as he teaches in the teaching hospital, it was a teaching round. He was preparing for surgery the next day. So was, after examining everything, he was giving instructions. And of course, the patient was overhearing everything. Not really overhearing. We were right beside his bed. So he was saying that, okay, I'm going to give him a below knee amputation by tomorrow and all of that and all of that. He was explaining the, all the theory. And the patient broke down and started crying. It was a middle-aged man. And said, Doc, please, if you can, spare my leg. And the man said to him, that is my desire. But I can't. He said, the way things are, he said, that is what, is that, that's my first choice. He said, but I haven't considered everything. There's nothing else I can do. It was a very bad thing. I was a medical student. We were going through our uh, rotations that time. We were not there for a long time, about four weeks. But then he did a below knee amputation. It didn't work. He did a mid-thigh amputation. It did not work. By the time we were leaving, he said, if this man does not start recovering by next week, I'm giving him a hemipervectomy. It was my first time of hearing that I'm going to remove half of his hip. Now, but he said something. This is not my desire. But this is the only way I can solve this problem at hand. So when God decided that Jesus has to go through that, it must have been necessary. Why is it like that? Like I said earlier on, I don't really know. I don't fully understand. Paul said, well, right now, we see in part. We prophesy in part. Maybe a day will come in which I will fully understand why a man had to suffer the way Jesus did, especially when he never did any wrong. It must have been important. And that's why we're talking about it. And when Paul would preach this, people get confused. Because the Greeks, they were so much into wisdom. I bought a book the other day titled How 
Plato and Pythagoras can save your life. I was so curious. <laughs> I've not finished reading the book. I lost interest halfway through. But I was curious, what is this man talking about? Because he had problems and he went to the Greek philosophers. And from there, he moved into a bit of Eastern religion for what I saw. This man was looking for deliverance for the confession in his soul. He was a successful American young man who began to have a lot of troubles. And then one day, if I said the day, he knew his life had come to an end. They were climbing stairs and his good friend that was very healthy, young people, dropped and died right beside him. He said something's wrong with his life. Because then he had succeeded, he had a lot of money, then he went down. His only friend that was not helping him, they were climbing the stairs, and that one just stumbled and died. Ah, the man started looking for help. He now went to, to, to start studying philosophy. So he wrote a book because it helped him a bit. So that's how I was curious. I bought the book, it's titled How Plato and Pythagoras Can Save Your Life. Now, in that one, the Greeks, they tried to analyze life, tried to see how things tied together. Because, for example, for those of us who are in medicine, everything a doctor does, there's a process for it. They know this chemical combines with this, but if we stop that combination with this drug, we should be able to get this thing. So if you come and tell a doctor that if you put your hand on the patient, he will get well, he's going to think you're mental. How do you explain how a hand placed on somebody can dissolve a tumor that's inside his body? That is what they call stumbling. He gets confused. The Greek had that kind of thing tied together. Paul now came and said, oh, no, somebody will die somewhere and you'll be safe from your sins. So we don't have to go through ab reaction. <laughs> we don't have to go through psychotherapy. We don't have to go through psychoanalysis. How do I change a man's nature? Because somebody died many kilometers away. That was why the Greeks couldn't understand it. The Hebrews, the same thing. They had the laws of Moses. He said, this is with righteousness unto you if you observe all the letters of this law. That is, keep this, God will be happy. These are the commandments. They have 613 of them. So the man at this, they had a goal. Something to do. If I can get to 613, I know I am safe. Then Paul came, and people like him, and said, no, that's not necessarily. One man died, believed that he died. And that will solve a problem that keeping 613 commandments was supposed to solve. That again was a stumbling block. But God said, this is the way. In fact, God said himself that everything I did through Moses, from Abraham down to Moses, until the time that Jesus Christ came, it was to come to a point in which my son would die, would be raised again from the dead, and if you want to be saved, you believe it. In all honesty, it makes no sense to the natural reasoning person. We only believe it because that is the only thing we found out. Having examined everything, that God spoke and said, this is the way I want to do it. And like I always say, I did not manufacture the earth. I didn't create myself. One day I became aware and they said I was born. That is, I was not even there when I was born, if you know what I'm going to say. <laughs> I just grew up and I was informed that one day I was born. So I have to learn the rules. I don't make the rules. And the person who created everything, he has given us and said, this is my rule. This is the way it works. If you want to come unto me, you have to come through my son. So I started learning how this sonship thing works. But having learned for some time, I, I, I've come to understand a few things. One of them is that sin, which we talk about a lot, it's a reality in life. Sin is actually not a moral problem, the way people think it is. Now let me really say something. Because we are very conversant with the physical world, we tend to think that is all there is to life. I have a pulpit in front of me, it's holding my... My papers is holding my device, holding my. I'm reading my Bible from here. So this thing looks very real. I drove a car to get here. It's very real. 
So I actually think that is the most real thing in life. So we start thinking that heaven is cloud. Of course, is it drawings of heaven, cl- plenty of cloud, angels floating around? I want to quickly say something. It is not like that. God is more real than we are. We are the ones that are like cloud. We are the ones that the angels touch and say, you mean this fellow is real? That is, <laughs> it's not the other way around. They actually are existing. Angels are not things of the imagination. We are here. They are sitting right here. Some of the things I read about when I see, I watch National Geographic, Discovery World, all these historical channels, and they talk about the ancient world. I start laughing. They say man was a hunter-gatherer walking around naked. It's a lie. Man was never a hunter-gatherer unless he sinned and God removed his intelligence. In the beginning, Adam and Eve were not alone. There were angels that taught them how to smelt iron. There were angels around that taught them how to cook. They showed them the things that God made. These things were not accidental discoveries. But when we see somewhere along the line, when men had lost the sense of God, and God gave them over to foolishness, we think that men started being a hunter-gatherer. No, 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 not at all. Man was never a hunter-gatherer. Angels were there to show him. The Bible says that the angels witnessed the dawn of the morning. They knew what was happening that time. And that was why God used to walk down in the cool of the evening. And Adam and Eve were used to the sound, not the spiritual perception, the sound of his feet. God used to walk around. God, Jesus, literally, before Abraham he was there, he used to walk around on the earth with angels. When he was going to um, Sodom and Gomorrah, he wasn't alone. He had two angels walking with him. And these people ate food. What I'm going to emphasize is the fact that spiritual things are not imaginary things. They are real things. It's a present fact. And our God, Jesus said in that book of John chapter 4, he said God is spirit. Literally what it means is that God is not flesh. So you can't feel him by flesh. But God is spirit. That he's real is just in another realm. Why am I saying this? When we're talking about sin, sin is a spiritually tangible substance. That's what I want to emphasize. It is a spiritually tangible substance. It's something that is released into the atmosphere when there's a problem. When man disobeys, it is not just, okay, maybe I'm at home. I tell my son, nobody should go out. Then I come and I find all him and his younger ones playing outside. So I stand and say, why are you people outside? Everybody go back inside. Now, that is how we look at sin. They've disobeyed the instruction not to come out. So I solve it by sending them back inside and locking the door. Spiritually, it is not like that. When man disobeys, it is as if he injected a poison into the spiritual realm. That poison has to be recovered. The effect has to be reversed. That's why God cannot just say, okay, forget it. Forget it. It's like the way I like to illustrate it. We are going on the road, which happens to a lot of us in Nigeria. You know, if it's um, North America, you know, um, Western Europe, where people are much more developed, if a man runs into your car, you exchange insurance information. You know, policeman checks something, insurance takes care of it. But in Nigeria, a man runs into your car, especially when he's an Okada man or a Kekena Pep, and you have a fine car. He believes the way to solve it is to prostrate. So he comes and lies down and says, sorry, sir. And like I always say, what does sorry mean? Because people think that sorry, and I've been there before, innocent bystanders who don't have cars, who don't have money, they will now come and be joining to beg. That is one that annoys my soul. I would prefer if you just walk away. Don't come and beg. Because now, now that you are begging, if I don't accept the beg, you say, this man is wicked. You forget that when you say sorry, it's going to cost me 20000 naira. When you say sorry, this car has to be fixed. You broke my lights. If I go, depending on the kind of car I'm using, I may have to spend as much as 
maybe 80,000 to fix that car that you're telling me sorry. So sorry has a financial value. So I say to people, please don't say sorry. And that's how I practice it. If somebody's, if they jam each other, I don't, God sees my, my, I'm not joking. I don't ever say sorry. I will go there. How much is it? Can we contribute the money? If we can't, I won't say sorry. Because that sorry is an insult. You're insulting the man whose car you just destroyed. One day, my, some, a, a bike man long ago jammed my mother-in-law's car. Wrecked something very good in the car. My mother-in-law looked at the man. The man, of course, usually was prostrating, sorry. He said, no, enter the car. They drove down to where they sell the parts. It was an expensive car. They priced the parts. She paid for the new ones. Said, I just want you to know what, what you did is costing me. I just want you to know. So the next time you are saying sorry, you don't just say this sorry like, uh, but he has been begging you now. The way, that's how I practice it. One day I was in my friend's car. We were going to, from the old UNT to the new one. Then one boss man, the old UNT, just ran into his car. Said again, say sorry. I've got, this is my principle. I've been teaching it for a long time. I said, my friend said, what do we do? I said, which kind of nonsense? Sorry. Come on, enter the car. Let's go to the panel beta. When we got the panel beta, I said, it will cost 8000 I said, good. Let's start saying sorry. I did my hand in my pocket, brought out some money. So this is my contribution. I said, my friend who owns the car, he will contribute. You that did the damage, what is your contribution to your sorry? I'm saying all of this to let us know that disobedience is not, don't worry about it. It has a cost. When we sin, God actually has to fix the thing that we did. When human beings sin, in the realm of the spirit, you can actually get a crucible and start measuring the effect. There are, you know, we have giga counters, Fukushima reactor. There was a, they count the amount of radiation in the environment. I was watching the other day on TV, very funny. Some, young, some women, housewives, decided to go and set up a lab to be counting the radiation in vegetables before children eat it. They are doing that right now in the Fukushima region in Japan because of the nuclear reactor that had problems a few years ago. Now, that is the effect of that nuclear reactor. You can't just go there and say, Fukushima people, please, sorry. The, the company can say that. It has a cost. So they are counting it, how much radiation is leaking into the ocean. How can we fix this? And that's how it is in the realm of the spirit. It's spiritual radiation. It can be counted. If God brought out his spiritual giga counter, he can show you this is the level of radiation that the iniquity of Sodom released under the earth. And the radiation has been released. It is there. Even if I kill all of them, the radiation is there. I have to fix it. I have to reverse it. I have to purify the heart of man. I have to change that corruption that has come into their hearts. He said concerning Satan, he said, because of the multitude of your merchandise, you have filled the midst of you with violence. I have to remove it. People's actions corrupt their minds. In medicine, we talk about DNA, mutations. I have to unmutate the thing that mutated. Otherwise, the whole universe is in disarray. What was his, his own solution? How he came up to that solution, I don't know. But he said the solution is that there has to be a pure lamp that will die for the redemption of not only mankind, but for the whole universe. And he first showed to us that nobody else could do it. And the Bible says, therefore his own arm brought salvation to him. So God had to come down in the likeness of man so as to die for the sin of mankind. That is why he had to die. It's a real... If physicists could go to the realm of the heavens, they would be able to write the calculations. If God showed it to them, these things are tangible. That's why he couldn't just say, forget it. 
Adam, yes, I want to overlook it. But what about the radiation you have released? We have to mop it up. We have to clear it. We have to reverse the mutations. We have to return things back to the way they were supposed to be at the beginning. That was why he had to die. That was why even though it was painful, and Jesus said this is hard, and he asked the father, is there any other way? The father said, if there was another way, I wouldn't have come up with this difficult one in the first place. The other day I saw these Japanese people. I said, no wonder God really blessed them. Some old men who are retired from working in that, in those, in those, um, in that radiation in, in the nuclear reactor. They came back to work. They said, why? He said, before the effect takes a effect that is the low dose radiation, before it causes any problem, maybe another 15, 20 years, he said, we'll be dead by then. <laughs> they came back to work. He said, you won't hurt the younger generation. These things have effect. And God said, listen, the men were saying, in effect, if there was another way, why would we come? But this thing needs human beings to man them. The other day I was reading that all the robots descending also die. The radiation cripples the robots. Then they drop to the bottom of the ocean. Now, if there was another way, men wouldn't put their lives at risk. But there is no other way to contain this radiation. So they keep on working. They keep on working. They keep on working. In the same manner, there was no other way for God to contain the radiation caused sin. He said, for that reason, Jesus has to die. That is the reason why he came. That's the reason why he died. That's the reason why he went through that um, punishment that Mel Gibson depicted in the film, The Passion of the Christ. And like I said, what we see physically was a small part. The real part was a spiritual substance that was working so strongly inside his heart. Even he said, he started, I mean, he started sweating and the sweat was, was blood. It was dropping from his brow. Nobody had touched him. It was necessary. And that's why we appreciate him all the time for it. There's something somebody said, one man I was listening to. I've not finished processing it. He said, we don't fully understand. According to him, we think that Jesus came, did what he had to do, and returned back to the way he used to be. He said, it's not true. That's not like that. He said, now he has to have a body for eternity. That right now, he dwells in a heavenly body. But that body had to come. In fact, he explained to his children that if you saw your fish in your aquarium having problems, we'll be willing to become fish to solve it. And the children said, oh, why not? We can do that. He said, what if I say you have to remain fish for the rest of your life? Ah, discussion change you. That is. <laughs> but that's the kind of sacrifice the Lord Jesus was willing to make for us. And that's why we celebrate at such time. It is important that we remember it. Now, I'm talking about his death, his, his cross, and the resurrection. Because my time is really far gone, I'll just make a few statements about the resurrection. The resurrection itself is a sign. The resurrection is a sign that the thing that he was doing had been accomplished. Because this is how it is. For him to be able to die, you know, some people are literally unkillable. They are literally immortal. And Jesus was like that. For him to be able to die, it was because he consciously subjected himself to death. He said, I lay down my life by myself. No one takes it from me. That was why when they came to arrest him, he made them try a number of times. And they failed. Just to demonstrate to the disciples that I am not being carried away because they are powerful. I am being carried away because I willingly willed it so. So they came, who do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. And they all fell backwards. He said, I am he. They fell backwards. They came up again. Who are you seeking? Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am he. They fell down again. 
When that happened a number of times, he now said, come, let's go. Then they were able to take him. He was just demonstrating to the disciples that it's a conscious thing that I did. Otherwise, he was somebody that you could not kill. Death, death does not take everybody. It does not take everything. There are things it can't touch. And that was one person he could not touch. But then, the Bible says that he made him to be seen on our behalf. That's from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. What does that mean? He took on, there are two sides to it. One, the sin of man was passed on to him. He became contaminated by that sin. At the same time, he became the sin offering. That was why he died. Now, the process, like I said, I don't know everything. The much of it that I understand is that a certain, a certain amount of spiritual transactions happened because of that. At the end of the day, he had wiped out, he had cleansed away all the radiation, you know what I mean by radiation, and the spiritual radiation in the realm of the spirit. He had cleansed it away. He had neutralized it. He had all the pollution in Niger Delta was gone. How he did it, like I said, I don't fully know. But he did it. And when it was done, the father could now forgive entirely. Before that, forgiveness was a suspension of sentence. I mean, I'm just explaining that. For thousands of years, God was forgiving sins, but all those forgivenesses, if I may use that expression, they were suspensions of sentences. And that was why God could not forgive sin except there was a sacrifice. Every sacrificial lamb that was slaughtered was a, it was like somebody making a commitment that don't worry, this is covered by the fourth, by the sacrifice that is coming. Each person that made a sacrifice was expressing faith in the forthcoming sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. God could not justifiably forgive anybody. He could only suspend the sentence. Now, so when the Lord Jesus now came, that was the first time ever he could truly forgive. Because he forgave sins that were committed before then. And he forgave sins that will be committed in the future. Jesus paid for everything. Like I said, how he did, I don't know. But the scriptures show to us that that was exactly what happened. And when that was done, the Father now said, Now, Everything has been cleansed. I can now forgive totally and entirely, including the man who paid for all the sins. At that time, he resumed back to that nature that could not be killed. For that reason, he rose up by force. That is, death could no longer hold him down. That was what Peter said about it. He said, sin that death could no longer hold him down. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a sign that something had happened. It's a sign. It's a sign that sins have been forgiven. It's a sign that the thing that offended the Father has been wiped away. It's a sign that spiritual redemption has been, you know, has been taken care of. It's like when we were in chemistry those days. They used to, we used to use um, acid-based indicators, what they call those things, indicators. Uh, like bitmos paper. They used to use phenolphthalein and stuff like that. And you are doing your titration. When the color changes, it is not like you did anything really. It's that acid-based balance had reached a particular point. pH had changed then the color will change. The color change is not out of desire. It's out of the pH that is inside. That's how the resurrection is. It's a sign that something had happened. So when Jesus rose up from the dead, what, what, what did it mean? It means, ha, ah, it worked. It means, ha, ah, everything has been solved. It means, uh-huh, now, oh, all those things have been wiped away. That's what the, Paul was explaining, that there is a power that that brings into our lives. Let me just quickly say this, and I close with it. Many of these things I've described, people will say, okay, if it's like that, how come things are not this other way? How come things are still bad? How come we still fall sick? How come we still have these problems we can't solve? It is simple. When God does something, 
it becomes our responsibility to bring them down into reality on the earth. And that was why he talked about faith. A man came and said, have mercy on me. If you can do anything. Jesus said, if I can do anything. He said, no, that's not the problem. It's whether you can believe. He said, that's why, whether you can believe. Paul said, why am I, what am I laboring for all my life? He said, I want to experience the power of his resurrection. Like I said all the time when I'm preaching, many of the things I want to experience in life is not of desire. It's just that, ah, if this thing is true, let us experience it. I like one that Albert Einstein used to say. Albert Einstein said, I don't want to be right. I want to know if I am right. Albert Einstein, they used to do research in physics just in the, the, what they call uh, applied physics. They were theoretical physicists. They would write principles, write, 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 write it, um, equations. Thank you. They write equations. At the end of the day, they say, is it correct? They build a lab. Sometimes those labs take hundreds of millions of dollars. They build it to show that this thing is correct. Some time ago, a man he was in his car going for a physics meeting. He sat in his car and an idea came to his mind. He said, no, this thing must be like this. This must be the foundation for gravity. And it's, it, the man's name was Higgs. And then years later, they built a giant collider that demonstrated the existence of what they call the Higgs boson. And they gave the man a Nobel Prize. Before they experienced it, he knew it by calculation that it must be like that. And that's what it is with our lives in Christianity. We discuss these things. Yes, they are real. They are in the realm of the spirit. God says, okay, what are you going to do about it? Why do I give you knowledge? Why do I give you understanding? I want you to believe those things and they will become real in your life. That's what God is saying. What is the power of resurrection? That's why we say, me, I'm a, I'm a Pentecostal preacher. Not, no, I'm not a preacher. I'm a believer. Some people say that uh, the days of miracles are past. Unless Jesus died again, those days are not past at all. Unless he managed to come back and redie, and they made they rewound him, and then he went back to the grave. If that did not happen, that means the power of resurrection is alive and well today. That's what it means. That's what it means. It means with him, miracles still happen today. Till now, he cures what they call incurable diseases. Because he said, after all, I've wiped away the radiation. That is the meaning of resurrection. Resurrection is not something we just learn so we can go to church and carry palm on Sunday. Even this matter of Easter, I don't want to start talking about it. People say, Jesus he could not have died on Friday and risen again on Sunday. That would be two days and two nights. We just chose the day to remember some things. The fact is that he was in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. That's what he said. So it's not just about whether we go to church or celebrate. Easter is a daily thing. It's something we experience every day. When we see a problem, we say, there is a problem, there must be a solution. Why? After all, Jesus rose up from the dead. That's the foundational truth with which we attack things in life. If I see a problem in life, I say, wait, till, this problem must have a solution. I say, why are you so sure? I said, because simply... Jesus rose again from the dead. When he rose again from the dead, he said the power of sin has been broken. So that problem is the power of sin. We can break its effect also if we really hold on to the fact that Jesus rose again from the dead. That is the meaning. It's a daily thing. It's a habitual thing. It's what we walk by all the time. I hope I've made my point. Can we just bow down and give the Lord thanks for it? Say, Lord, thank you for the death of Jesus. Say, Lord, thank you, because it was for me. Let's say, Lord, thank you, because he wiped away the effect of my sins. Let's say, Lord, thank you, because my sins have been cleansed. Yes, they've been cleansed. The truth is my portion, because I believe it.
There was a time that in the, in the wilderness, snakes beat the people. And God said, if you want to be healed, you have to stare attentively at that cross, which I'm instructing Moses to put upon a standard, upon a pole. And Moses did it, and as many as fixed their gaze upon him, they experienced the power, so to speak, of resurrection. And now he said, if anybody is going to be saved, it will be because they looked to that serpent, which is Jesus Christ this time around, that's upon the, on, on the cross. Say, Lord, I look to him. I look to him. All my problems are washed away. All my sins are washed away. All my sicknesses are washed away. Whatever be the affliction in my system, it is washed away. Let's just give God thanks for that. Let's give him thanks for that. Our Father, we thank you. I think it's a good time for us to just individually, specifically pray about something that is dear to us. Say, Lord, if indeed it is true that Jesus died and he rose again, then I have a solution to this affliction. I have a solution to this problem. It's time to claim it. When faith is stirred up by the entrance of his word, let's use it for something. Let us give him thanks. Let's just take a moment also and just pray. I just feel like we should do that for our beloved country. Many times people criticize. Of course, we did that a lot until Jonathan left. Somebody else came in. Many people are still continuing and say, Lord, thank you for the power of resurrection. Let it work in our country. Just a simple prayer. Let's ask his blessing at this season for this nation. From the north to the south, from the east to the west, every nook and cranny of this country. Say, Lord, let evil be uprooted by the power of resurrection. Let truth and righteousness prevail. From Asurok down to the lowest government official in the local government. Let the power of resurrection turn this our nation around. Father, we give you thanks. In the name of Jesus Christ, we have prayed.